With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by The China Project, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And today we are joined by Mona Chung, a bicultural expert on doing business in and with China. After getting her PhD, Mona was a professor at Deakin University in Australia and most recently joined Bluemont Capital, a consulting firm advising international businesses in China. We started our conversation exploring Mona's academic career in her dissertation and subsequent book that focused on Foster's, the Australian beer company, and the company's failed market entry. Mona shared her research on how a lack of awareness and understanding of cultural differences undermined Foster's work in China from the start. She told me many interesting and sometimes funny stories of cultural misunderstanding, such as translation of the brand name, preferences of beer tapes and temperature, and also pricing strategies. We then moved on to discuss some of the common cultural differences that might create tensions between Chinese and foreign businesses, especially in areas like marketing and cross-cultural management. With this in mind, we also discussed Mona's work at Bluemont Capital and the challenges her clients face. She shared some useful cultural communications and negotiation strategies that helped one of her clients, an Australian Wagyu exporter, navigate the China market, especially during the pandemic when face-to-face -face communications are becoming even harder to realize. Mona has also written extensively on Huawei, and we also discussed Ren Zhengfei's recent memo addressing Huawei employees that paints a gloomy picture of the company's future. Mona shared her thoughts also on Ren's army connections and the nature of the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese companies. Also covered in our conversation is the lasting importance of Maoism in China and how Mao fundamentally changed Chinese society. Mona gives credits to Mao for elevating women's positions, of course, embodying the famous quote, women hold up half the sky. But she also pointed out that the Cultural Revolution has planted seeds of distrust in China's relationship-based society, which makes communications even more important when doing business. We concluded with Mona giving three valuable suggestions to Western companies wishing to enter the China market in today's tense climate. 
Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Mona, welcome to China Corner Office. Chris, thank you very much for having me. The first question, I'd love to dive in a little bit about your research on Foster's Beverage in China. You have this really evocatively titled book called Shanghai, Why Foster's Could Not Survive in China. One of the reasons why I think that's really appealing to learn about is that there's so much celebration of success cases, and there's a lot of things we can learn from companies that actually don't survive. So would love to just hear your summary of, in some ways, the book and the argument and why actually Foster's was unable to survive in China. Sure. First of all, Foster's is the largest beverage company in Australia. And the title came about as the first joint venture of Foster's was set up in Shanghai. There are a couple of very interesting coincident key points. The first joint venture started in Shanghai in 1993, which is Shanghai, because consequently they set up the Guangzhou one, And then they sat up to Tianjin one. So they had three joint ventures altogether. Enormous amount of investments actually went into the Chinese market. On their annual review, it was $256 million. Obviously, there's a different figure that's not going on the book. Nonetheless, whichever the number we're looking at, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions. And back in 1993, that was a ton of money. A lot and lot of money. And of course, till the last day, Foster's withdrawal from China did not make even one dollar of profit. Wow. So a lot of money went down. What went wrong? Foster's attitude initially was we got this great product, which is Foster's beer. We make the best beer in the world. Fantastic attitude. So if we go to China, we make it. People will all want to drink it. So many things they did not think about. First of all, is there a beer drinking culture? The same beer drinking culture as the one we have in Australia? No, miles apart. Two, how much are you selling your beer for? Their joint venture in Tianjin, for example, was at a level where it appeared to be very successful because they were selling truckloads, literally truckloads, because the opening in the morning, they would have trucks lining up to pick up beer. However, the more they sold, the more they lost because they could not get the price. In 1993, 94, 96, in the early 90s, Chinese did not have much disposable income as they did today. Therefore, they could not afford the price mark that Foster set up to sell. And the cost of production was high because we have all these Australian standards. Barley had to be moldy, everything was imported, and et cetera, et cetera. Foster just did not consider what would suit the local market. There is just so many examples of these. One very quick one in China, Chinese would buy their beer could be any temperature. Depends on the shops. So little local shops would have no fridge. Also culturally, they believe that you don't drink a beer cold because it's bad for your health. In winter, especially, they turn all the fridges off. So you buy room temperature beer, where Foster's had the culture of saying beer has to be drank cold. And of course, when beer was also stored outside the fridge, outside the little corner shop, under the sun, gets sunstroke. And of course, the taste changes. But that's only to the standards of the brewers 
in Australia or coming from Australia. So the Australian Brewers went to China, did all this wonderful product, quality control, the whole lot, obviously costly. And Chinese consumers drink the product and they say, no, this doesn't taste right. <laughs> not sunstroke, not warm. Doesn't taste like normal beer. That's interesting. And I'm curious that you mentioned prices. So what was the price differential between the local beer and what Foster's was wanting to charge? At the time, Foster's beer was about 10 times more than the local beer. Wow, that's a huge difference. Especially, you know, in the country where there wasn't a lot of disposable income, you couldn't expect people to, they probably would try it once. There were just so many cultural stories, actually. There's another very good one, how you translate. Initially, they had someone from Hong Kong who speaks Cantonese to translate. So... The translation resembles the sound. Disasters has arrived. What is that in Chinese of Mandarin, of Putonghua? Now they have translated into Fu Shi Da. Initially it was Huo Shi Da. Huo Shi is disasters. So you have brewers sitting in a five-star hotel and listening to some Chinese and looking at this great expensive venue of Foster's Beer going, Huo Shi Da, who's going to drink one of those? There's a famous example of a similar translation mistake with Chevrolet brand was entering Mexico. You know, they named it Nova, which means it doesn't go. The other very similar story was um, Persia. When Persia first went into China, Persia in Mandarin is Belgian, which says beautiful standard quality. Lovely word. But when it's pronounced in Cantonese... It's the same pronunciation as prostitute. It was actually funny when I was interviewed by one of the journalists from the age and he said, buying one of those and go home and say to the wife, look, darling, I bought you a prostitute. But it's okay. It's a French one, so it's acceptable. You know, I hadn't thought a lot about that before. I mean, obviously, there's a Nova example, but China with different regional languages, and it's not just Cantonese and Mandarin, but a lot of different local dialects. That really makes it a challenge. That's right. And after that, we're talking about the pronunciation, but picking the characters is another one. So Foster's then moved from Huo Shida, so no more disasters, and they changed it into Fu Shida, except the two characters they picked. Fu is a good character, meaning wolf. Shu is just a character which it's okay, except the two characters that they picked is the same ones as Fuji Mountain, which then causes a confusion about an Australian beer with Fuji Mountain reference, and no one could quite understand what it's all about. Has Foster's re-entered China, do you know? Foster's did, but not with its beer. At the time when Foster's did the beer, it only had beer. And later on, Foster's bought a whole range of vineyard in Australia, and they added all the ready-to-drink drinks as well. So after its official announcement of withdrawal from China, they then went back into China with wine, Penfold. Oh, the Penfolds. Yeah, that is really a high-class wine in China. Especially the Bin 888. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> I think they later on did also Foster's beer simply through exporting, but it's never actually taken off um, in large quantities. And today, if you go to China, you won't find Foster's beer 
and you yeah. ask anyone about Foster's beers and no one would actually know the rank. I like Chinese beer very much. I typically in the U.S. will drink more like hoppy type of beer, but the Chinese lager beer, very crisp and refreshing. I don't like lager beer in the U.S. very much. And I had spent some time in Lhasa, Tibet, and there is a Lhasa beer, which was really, really good. I guess they use the sort of mountain stream water. And they also told me because Chinese beer uses rice as the grain, as opposed to barley, this made it very, very crisp and refreshing. And they told me that actually they do have limited distribution in America, but actually what they do in America, because Americans like barley, is actually they formulate a special American version of Lhasa beer actually in Tibet uh, using barley and then ship it over. So you mentioned barley. Did they put any thought into changing their recipe or they were just very stuck on barley? Well, in fact, when they first arrived there, that was one of their challenges. They didn't know their beer could be brewed with rice. And in Shanghai, they indeed found the local brand. Guangming brand was the local brand that was brewed with rice. And initially, they were going to change from rice to malt. And of course, that means the cost went up. So you then can't sell a local beer at a local price, which meant that the brewers, in fact, had to actually learn how to brew with rice. The comment was, once you've learned it, it's actually the same thing because the idea is obviously the starch and the sugar they're using. So it's a matter of get your mind to change around it. That's all. Where before that, it was like, oh, unheard of. Like, how could you do it? The other thing, because you were talking about the taste thing, that's another cultural difference in the sense that Australians will not drink a beer if it doesn't have enough strength. The hopsy taste, the alcohol level. I think when um, Foster's, uh, actually Victoria Bitter was the biggest brand here in Victoria, I think they were at 5.4% um, alcohol initially and they dropped it for, to 4.8 at one point and consumers complained. They could taste the difference. Where in China, especially today, I, have to, I don't think I've actually seen any beer that's brewed with more than 2-3% of alcohol. Maybe we could talk a little bit actually about your other book, your second book, because this Foster's case provides some really interesting discussion of specific characteristics where a business failed. But your second book, which is called Doing Business Successfully in China, is more about sort of general cultural differences between China and the West. And can you say a little bit about some of those cultural differences that create some tension or problems for people from these different countries to do business together? I focused on the general cultural differences as one section. And I then specifically look at the cultural differences, how that influence on decision makings in market entry in investments. I then specifically look at cross-cultural management, how to actually manage a team of Australians, local Chinese and overseas Chinese. And they were actually the three things I categorised the employees, which I guess, at least before my research, no one was actually doing that, especially right. between local Chinese and overseas Chinese. People just think, oh, you're all Chinese. That's not true. For example, one of the managers who's Chinese from Canada, he's actually still living in China, in Shanghai now with kids and wife from China. And when he first went there, of course, um, he didn't speak a lot of Chinese, but more importantly, because he grew up in Canada, he was a Canadian. 
his entire behaviour and conduct was all Canadian. And he thought he's Chinese, he looked Chinese, people look at him, people expect him to behave like Chinese, but he couldn't. There were also a whole bunch of other ones, the ones from Hong Kong, which had cultural issues because before 97, as we know, Hong Kong, people thought that they were above the mainland Chinese, where the mainland Chinese did not entertain that concept. So there's a sort of like a constant conflict. One of the Hong Kong Chinese who worked for Fosters in Hong Kong literally would not spend time in Shanghai. He would fly in in the morning and fly back in the evening. And so the local Chinese, of course, did not sort of really accept him. And the other section I look at is the cross-cultural marketing, which is to look at brand names, consumer values, and what consumers look at from the Chinese perspective as value and what Australians saw in the product as value. Yeah. So what are some of those differences that maybe Chinese consumers would focus on versus Australian consumers? If we talk about marketing or products, for example, we mentioned about the cost of producing a product. The brewers believed that because they had their system of producing their beer and that they follow the same system, nothing, you know, they can't cut corners, QA, everything is all very important. One of the problems they did not encounter in Shanghai the early days is your electricity and heat may be turned off at some point. For the Australian brewers, if you've got a brew on, the temperature has to be kept at a certain level. If the temperature drops, you pour the entire brew down the drain. Therefore, in order to make sure that your heat and your electricity doesn't get turned off, you must have the local people who are in charge of the heat or electricity for dinner regularly. And of course, the first thing the Australian team said, this is no way that's called bribery. We would not do that. And of course, they found the electricity is being turned off at any hours. The steam was turned off any hours. They were pouring down the drain, brew after brew after brew, until they come back to realise perhaps we should resume the old tradition. So that was one of the very good examples. There was another one. They were trying to get some bottles from another city. And, of course, the official line from the railway station, the railway master was, we have no space, we cannot ship these bottles for you. Of course, the Australian executive team initially said that we don't entertain, we don't take anyone for dinner. So there were no bottles until the point where the local team told the Australian team that we really must do. They had dinner. Next day, the bottles were on the train. Your background is so interesting, I think. I mean, not only have you written these books and you're a professor at Deakin University for a while, you also have Blue Mount Capital, where you actively work to advise companies actually entering China and doing business in China. Can you share a little bit about that experience, how you sort of took these insights that you had from your research, from your experience, and now help companies as they do business in China? To answer that question, I'll probably introduce a little bit about myself and my history and background. I always called myself a reformed academic while I was in universities, the reason being I came from business. My first degree was in um, international trade. 
I did that at Jemmy University. Then when I first came to Australia in 1989, people used to ask me, what did you do at university? I used to say international trade and people used to say, what's that? A time has changed now, of course. <laughs> but then I was consulted often by people, mostly Australian firms, wanted to do business with China, with Chinese. Very often they would come to me to say, look, we started to do whatever, say we've got a product and we want to export this to China and we started to meet the Chinese. And I used to give people advice at the very beginning on how you should conduct your relationship side and negotiation, etc. Very often people would go away and do things their own way. And I often wouldn't hear from them for a while. Then I would hear from these people just totally out of the blue. Occasionally it would be 10 o'clock at night and there was once, I think it was 12.30 at night. So that person must have been rather desperate, I suppose. <laughs> and usually it would be, oh, Mona, the Chinese don't talk to us anymore. <laughs> that would always be the opening line. So I'd go back to let them tell me the stories of what happened, what did they do, what usually happened was in the communication. Um, those days also Chinese spoke less English than they were today as well. So in the communication, something went wrong and clearly things would go one little misunderstanding into something else and something else and something else. So months down the track, it will be the angry Chinese on the other side typically a cultural difference is to preserve the harmony and not to have a conflict is you better not to talk to the other side because if you do you're going to have a fight so this is the time when they just don't talk to the Australians anymore and then the Australians call me and then I'll get to speak to the Chinese and then I'll hear on this other side all these angry stories you know he said this she said that and she did this and he did that and you could just hear, oh, I guess you misunderstood that. It's either through the misinterpretation of behaviour or the misunderstanding of the language or the misunderstanding of how language was translated and a whole range of things. So at this point, I then sort of thought, to look, I better look for some literature to give to people to read. And my argument was you need to do some more homework before you jumped into the deeper end. And at that point, I could not find much research on doing business with China or cultural differences. I then went to Monash to do a master's degree. And then few of the colleagues, after I nearly finished the degree and few of the lecturers and then said, oh, Mona, I think this is a really good PhD topic in this. Why don't you do one? I just thought, didn't know what a PhD was at the time. I just thought, oh, yeah, it must be a good thing to do. So I did. And only when I got into it, I realised what I sort of committed myself to, but no regrets. And I was also doing some work with Fosters at the time. So look at how Fosters was just basically wasting money at the time. I sort of said, look, you know, even if I have a small portion of these we could do something differently and turn things around. At one point, um, their losses in China was $44 million a year. And the one executive that they employed managed to achieve a 
very, very huge achievement in in his terms was to reduce the loss from 44 to 24 million. So I thought, look, this is the best case study that I could actually use to base my uh, PhD on, plus all the contacts I already have. So then I had the support from the company as well. It was really a wonderful journey because it was also quite an enjoyable journey as well to talk to people and learn about things. From there, I continued on with the university until just before COVID. Somehow I obviously had a vision to time it quite rightly that I decided to, because I was actually doing a lot of research teaching at the same time I was doing some consulting work, which was getting a little bit too much. At one point, I was finished teaching, hop on the plane, do a couple of days, come straight back, and that was getting just a little bit over the top. So I decided to look, I'll just um, do the consulting work. Since joining um, Blue Mount, I managed to actually set up um, a Blue Mount office in Beijing in 2019, which again was a great timing. As soon as we set it up, we have COVID. But still, I think, you know, actually someone like yourself is probably all the more valuable now because obviously with COVID, been some interruption in trade, but also there's been, I think, even a more consequential interruption in people going back and forth. So I think that some of these misunderstandings that you're talking about are much easier to happen cross-culturally. And so having someone like you who is really understands both cultures is probably more valuable than ever. Very much so. Previously in my working in this cross-cultural communication and negotiation space, I previously often found myself in, say, a conference negotiation session. It will be like Mr. Jones said such and such, but what Mr. Jones meant is such and such. Then Mr. Jung said in these words, but what Mr. Jung really meant is such. Oh, that's what Mr. Jung wants to do. And that's what Mr. Wong wants to do. Right. Mr. Jones actually want these, not what it said on paper in words, which we don't understand what he actually wants. In your work at Blue Mount, are there any sort of clients or cases that you have that really encapsulate or illustrate some of the current challenges that companies are having in China? Probably the best sample of my current client. This is a Wagyu export business, and this has been the most challenging thing for us for the last nearly three years since last time we were in China was January 2020. This is cows raised in Australia. Their meat being exported to China, is that right? Correct. The Japanese species of cattle, they're different from our ordinary sort of beef and steak. They have much higher fat content in their meat. And so the marbling score is what the Japanese raved about. I think US was the first country that brought these cattle out of Japan. Mm. And then Australians very quickly got onto that and realized that this is a very much a nicer product. Japan now won't allow those live cattle to be exported anymore. Since 1997, they're not allowed to export them because of their national treasure. And of course, in the last couple of years, I think our one of the biggest challenges is that we couldn't go to China. A lot of the communication can actually see people's reaction, people's response to a thing that's being said. A lot of those things can't happen. It's rather challenging when you only rely on WeChat 
and some basically, you know, if you haven't got enough data, you don't use video either. <laughs> Even if with video, it's not quite the same thing as face-to-face. I'm curious about the Wagyu. Is an interesting counterpoint to what you were saying about fosters and the expense, because presumably those steaks are a lot more expensive than the Chinese grown beef, but obviously they're able to achieve this status prestige based on the type they are. Can you say a little bit about how price aspect is managed? And if, and actually sometimes I think having a high price is even better than having a low price because it sort of really signals the status element. Very much so. That's another cultural element for the Chinese. It's always this showing off element in the Chinese culture. Whether you could afford it or not, that's a separate question. Of course, if you can't afford it, you still can't show it to other people that you can't afford it. So you have to make sure everyone can see that you can afford it. Although the the changes in the Chinese economy has brought a lot of people with a lot of income, so they can actually afford Wagyu. This company is a reverse. Foster's was lots of money being in, invested into China by the Australians, where this company is a lot of money being invested by Chinese investors into Australia. And cattle is grown here, bred here. They've been fed on grain and then they've been slaughtered and then packaged specifically for China. And the company also exports to other parts of the markets as well. China was initially probably, say, the major and the biggest market, still the biggest market because of the risks and the the political relationship between Australia and China, especially in the last few years <laughs> with previous Prime Minister, there's always a desire to sort of reduce that reliance on the Chinese market. Nonetheless, never enough we can produce here. So plus Wagyu is a very expensive product. You don't really need to eat like a big chunk of 500 grams of meat. The Japanese sort of slice them really, really thin. They usually do cook them on a barbecue or something, but quite thin. Um, and the Koreans do the very similar thing and Chinese do very similar things too. Another topic I wanted to discuss with you is Huawei. I know you've done a lot of writing actually on Huawei as well. And this is, at least from the US perspective, a company that is frequently in geopolitical crosshairs and obviously hugely innovative national champion in some way, uh, China. I've, I've actually been to a few of the Huawei locations in Shenzhen and also a research lab of theirs, a very huge, gigantic building in Shanghai. And always amazed at 70% of their employees, I think, have PhDs or engineering background and this huge number of patents that they have. So two questions I want to ask. So one is how you see this tension, how Huawei can position itself vis-a-vis the tension. And then also in relation to that, so Ren Chengfei, I think about a week or two ago, wrote a letter about how the next decade is going to be a really tough, painful time for Huawei. Just any reflections you have on that as well? Yes, we did do a lot of work on Huawei and wrote quite a few papers and chapters on Huawei. Huawei is a very interesting, successful story, obviously, for Chinese, for China. I think, no doubt, it started with copying Cisco's devices, equipment. It's a very cheap way of offering consumers a cheaper alternative. But I think Huawei has grown 
from that, from its initial, I think it's 1992 from memory when it started. As you mentioned, the huge R&D centres, they have a very large R&D centre in Europe as well. They invest a lot into R&D. So it's a success story of a Chinese company by producing the lower end of the product. By the time they have large sales and more revenue, then they can afford to do the R&D. I think the story with Huawei is unfortunately a political one. There's always the talk about Ren Zhengfei's connection with the army. And of course, in Australia, the Australian government always used that as the army connection. I think it's very naive of any Western government or countries or companies to think that a Chinese companies don't have connections with the Chinese government. Right now, Chinese government still owns 50% of their enterprises, roughly, where previously, the beginning of economic reform, Chinese government used to own 85% of the enterprises. So it makes sense that if the government owns all the enterprises, then of course they're interested in how to run these businesses. They need to make profit. They need to make sure that it's, so these companies can continue. The talks about Zheng Zhengfei's connection with the army was he was in the army and then he left the army, which is, again, common. There's no way, I guess, that we can ever confirm whether he still does or doesn't, but nonetheless, he's now just a citizen. But that's always been the talk about you cannot trust Huawei if Huawei does all the communication equipment and there's the connection with the army. I guess if we look at the other side of the um, communication in the West, what does FBI do, CIA do? Every country has its intelligence. Where I think it appears to become a problem is that the CIA can, can collect intelligence, CIA can conduct whatever it conducts, ASIO can do whatever it does. If the Chinese government does it, that's not acceptable. It always does seem very targeted and one-sided to me as well. I mean, I think it's very reasonable to say, okay, for national security reasons, we're not going to have non-domestic partners in our telecommunications infrastructure. And I think China obviously does that. But of all this saying, oh, this person is co-opted by the government. These are things as like the Snowden and other leaks showed, oh, excuse me, all countries are doing this. And so I think we just should be honest about things instead of always pointing fingers. Precisely. So to answer your second question about his talk or paper, really, it was more of an internal memo that was being leaked. Looking at what's been happening with Huawei in the last couple of years, as we saw with bans between the US and China, and all the chip banning, the selling of the chips to Huawei, Huawei's revenue has been going down year by year and quarter by quarter. There's some figures, I think, quite significant. We're not talking about going down by 2% or 4%. We're talking about going down by 29%, 19%. That's a huge amount, which actually doesn't surprise me to read what Zheng Fei said about it. So if your company's revenue is going down 30% every quarter, you would be very quickly beyond the survival mode, which is what he said. I only read the English version, and this is where there is a difference. If I could get to read the Chinese version of the paper, I possibly would have a different interpretation. But I did read in one of the comments from one of the Chinese journalists or analysts, actually did to talk about the tone 
in what he wrote. I think the word this analyst used was panic. I suppose if I were the CEO or director of a company and my companies are going down 20, 30% every quarter, I think I would probably panic earlier. At one point, maybe before the trade war, like 120 or $150 billion in annual sales. And so they're probably still selling a lot, but yeah, the, definitely the year-on-year -year rate must be very, very concerning. And plus the trade war also meant that there were certain parts, especially the chips that the US is not selling or not allowing even related companies to sell to Huawei, which surely impacts on the capacity of producing certain products or the quantities. Yeah, we'll be interested to see how that sort of continues to play out. One last specific question in regards to sort of your research and writing I wanted to ask, because it connects to some of the work that I've been doing recently, is on the lasting importance of Mao and Maoism. And this is how I came across some of your work actually initially in, I think it was your book, Doing Business Successfully in China, you talk about the lasting importance of Maoism, both in various control aspects, and then also the lasting effect of the Cultural Revolution. Can you say a little bit about that work that you did and what your findings and ideas were? Maoism is a very important cultural element, I put it, in the modern Chinese history. When we say modern, it's already been 70 years. The Cultural Revolution, it's actually because the Chinese government recognized it as a mistake. I think in the current textbooks or education in schools, it's not very much taught in depth in the attempt of perhaps pretending it didn't happen, but it did happen. And what it changed is the traditional Chinese culture and the Confucianism, the levels of structure in the society, who is on top of whom, the relationship between the father and the son, the state and the individual and all of those things is very much changed. The other very important thing about Maoism is how Mao actually changed the position of women in China. The very traditional Chinese culture is the father is the head of the family. If the father passed away, then the oldest son became the head of the family, not the mother, even if the son is a tiny little kid. <laughs> but Mao actually made all the women to leave the house to go out and get a job. Initially, women didn't like that. What I think working and jobs and profession, etc., meant that women then had an income. Once they have an income, they have independence, where previously they did not have that. One of the very famous slogans Mao used at the time was, women hold half of the sky. Nowadays, we see very big differences in the Chinese organizations. For instance, you see a lot of females in very senior positions, sometimes more so than we see them in Australia. And people don't really blink in China to have a female or a male in those senior positions or to have females above males. On that particular topic, when I first came to Australia, I felt the culture here was backwards than the Chinese way that Chinese sort of progressed. And the Cultural Revolution is another very important one. We mentioned what the Cultural Revolution did. It was broke a lot of the traditional 
links of the culture, which is a shame because there was a lot of very valuable artifacts and literature and all being destroyed, which is a total shame of the part of the history, which is why I suppose the government try to pretend it didn't happen. One other very terrible thing that caused us through that cultural revolution is change the relationship between people. The very fundamental of the Chinese culture is a relationship based and the lots of the trust was broken during that period. Through those movements of denouncing the riot against all sorts of movements, husbands and wives were denouncing each other and telling the party what they said in the bedroom and things like that, which previously never heard of. The relationship sort of been changed between people and I think today people are less trusting to with each other, although the basis of the society is there's still a relationship-based. When you have a relationship-based system, but you don't trust people as much when you really need to, it sometimes causes this conflict. So you get to hear a lot of sort of stories now coming out of China, how people cheat each other and fraud and that sort of thing. We get it here too, but you tend to get some extraordinary stories coming out of China. The women hold up half the sky quote is so interesting. I mean, that gets used around the world. And actually, when introducing Kamala Harris, the vice president, Biden actually used that quote. And I don't think he realized he was quoting Mao, interpersonal trust point too. I've seen some recent survey-based analyses from some economists and political scientists that actually show the lower levels of trust of people who actually went through the Cultural Revolution and in places where it was more extreme. And the, the research that I've been doing in the book I have coming out actually shows some findings that actually business people that also experienced it are more likely to be caught in corruption scams and have be on these lists of shameless debtors. So I think there's definitely something to, to what you're saying. When is your new book coming out? It's coming out in November, actually. Looking forward to reading it. Definitely. I'll make sure I'll send you a copy. Thank you. Last question. We're just about out of time. So let's say a business from Australia or the US or the UK, a Western country is interested in entering and doing business in China now, today's current environment, assuming maybe COVID restrictions are going to be softening hopefully soon. What's your two or three piece of advice for them? My key message is the cultural differences. Realize that there are substantial cultural differences between the two countries. The way it is coming back to the fundamentals about cultural differences is that those cultures determined the way people behave in that society and makes that society work perfectly well. When you enter into that society with the different sets of cultures and different ways of doing things, I think the key message should be don't try to change the local culture. One is you're not going to succeed. You're going to fail because it's something that works in the local community. You can't change it. Two is that whatever the attempt you make, is really just going to make the attempt of trying to succeed less effective because you're wasting all your energy on trying to change things that you can't. So that's probably be my number one. And number two, I'd say, look, you got to look at the cultural differences and use as the guidelines of your strategic plan. It's not the other way around because one of the biggest mistakes the Fosters made was they took their strategic plan in South Bank and they take it to 
China, and they say, let's just copy. And in Foster's case, because that's what they did, they constantly found the strategies in China didn't work. Of course it didn't, because it wasn't designed for it. It's a bit like building a house. We have flat roofs and sash roofs, and if you use the wrong roof in the wrong time zone, it won't work. And then you can end up fixing it all the time. So once you have the strategy that's based on cultural differences, and I think the third message is to pay the attention to your communication and negotiation, and that it's going to be a constant thing. The Western business practice can see this negotiation as we enter into a negotiation. It doesn't matter how hard we bargain or whatever we do. We reach something at the end and that's it. We write it down and it's finished. For Chinese negotiations, it's an ongoing thing. Whatever we write down or we agree to, we can always come back and revisit it. And my advice to my client is always use that to your advantage. Why? Because circumstance change, people change, situation change, conditions change, everything changes. Why do you want to tie yourself down by a piece of paper where you've got no room to move? Thank you very much. Really appreciate you spending the time with us today on China Corner Office, Mona. Thank you, Chris. 